Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. Uh, and today I am joined by shoe designer and D2C entrepreneur, Sarah Flint. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, so always best to start at the beginning. Um, you studied at FIT, at Parsons, and then at Arsutoria uh, School of Design in Milan. What in your early background led you to study design, um, and in particular footwear design? Um, I've always been art obsessed, fashion obsessed, particularly shoe obsessed. Um, I used to wear, try and wear my patent leather tap shoes to school, probably from, you know, as soon as I started dancing at age five, because they were beautiful patent leather and had a little heel and made an amazing sound. Um, and I had this incredibly stylish grandmother, um, who was an artist and actually lived in Paris. And, uh, so I saw got an early fashion education from her. And I was always sketching and worked in retail in high school. And then I just always knew, I said, I'm gonna to move to New York. I applied to Parsons and FIT and that was it. I said, if I don't get into one of those, I'm just gonna <laughs> work for another year at this store, the only luxury store in my town and uh, which is in Massachusetts. And, um, and, and I did, so I, I went straight to, straight to Parsons from there. and. Uh, then moved to FIT. Well, so fashion education, in particular design education, can be very specific as it should be on, yeah. on the craft. Mm -hmm. um, but you are also a business owner, and most of the people I have on the podcast are business owners. What in that education was present to prepare you for that process, or was it completely devoid of any, any business training? <laughs> uh, I think I think that's a sort of learn as you go mostly uh, for me. So I had design training both at Parsons and FIT, and then I moved to Italy specifically to study manufacturing. Um, so I actually went to school there sort of alongside factory workers and learned about the engineering that goes into shoe design. Um, and my whole you know, reason for starting this brand was that I wanted to create shoes that were not only beautiful, um, but also you know, served a purpose in, in women's everyday lives and were actually comfortable. Uh, so that was very, very important for me. But I think, you know, there's so much that you don't know when you go into starting a business. I don't think there's ever, you know, real training for um, leadership, for, uh, you know, fundraising situations, for, um, you know, learning from your failures, all of these things that you sort of uh, figure out as you go along. Yeah, no, it's a tough one. Um, you know, NYU is one of the business schools that has a specific fashion MBA, but of yeah. course that's another two years lopped onto what is already an impressive CV uh, of, of educational institutions. And so, you know, I'm sure you were sort of chomping at the bit to get out and get started. So 2013 mm -hmm. uh, is when you launched the brand. And you, like many designers before you, uh, named the brand after yourself. Mm -hmm. What went into that decision? I mean, was it just a foregone conclusion? I, that's who I am and I'm gonna name the brand after myself or was there thought behind this is our trademark and there are implications there? 
so that was not the decision right away. Of course, I had like so many people, a, a, a two page list of all of the different names that I thought would be amazing. And um, one of the things that I did early on before starting the business was sort of assemble a group of advisors around me and, and people that had been successful in the business before me. And in speaking with all of them and going through the list of names and talking through you know, the why behind each one, every single person said, you have a great name. It's very memorable. It's easy. It's pronounceable in every language. Trying to start a brand is, is hard enough as it is. You're going to have to promote yourself as a designer and promote the brand, save yourself some work and do it all at once. Yeah. And so, now, you know, Sarah Flint is right out of like a Hollywood blockbuster. Right? Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. Tom Cruise and Sarah Flint, Flint in. <laughs> I thought just Flint could be really interesting as well, but ended up doing the whole thing. By the way, you know, a board of advisors, that's very business school of you. I mean, that's actually <laughs> what, what a lot of startups that, uh, that come out of MBA programs do, yeah. um, because it's a great way to get, I won't call it free, but, you know, cost effective, we will say, um, <laughs> and honest and earnest advice from people that are really above the pay grade of what you can afford yet. Definitely. And um, some of those people have become actual board members now, um, which has been interesting. And some said no in the beginning. Uh, Howard Sokol, who's one of my my board members. Have, have you met Howard? I, I know Howard. Yeah, I know okay, Howard. Great. So Howard, when I was first introduced with him, to him, we had lunch and I hadn't started the brand and he told me not to do it. <laughs> he said it was going to be really hard and I should just go work for somebody else. Um, yeah. And I sort of kept sending him news about the brand as it launched and um eventually when i got on the um like women's wear 10 of tomorrow um thing he i sent it to him and he sent me a congratulations note and i said you know i know i know you're too busy i know you've got a lot going on but let let me take you out to coffee again let's talk and uh, eventually convinced him to do it <laughs> that's that's great now the jet fuel of good press particularly yeah. in the fashion industry is is important um but so the eponymous brand, you know, I ask because when you do rounds of financing mm -hmm. uh, or if you have an exit moment, which, you know, it's early days for that, but uh, if and when that happens, you, you are faced with a bit of chiseling away of ownership over your trademark, which is your name. And so has that presented problems yet for you? Am I, am I now planting the seed for nightmares, you know, for the next <laughs> decade? I think that's certainly been a question that people have had, you know, throughout, um, whether it be, you know, fundraising or, or otherwise. Um, I think sometimes, you know, even in hiring and hiring, you know, a CEO or things like that, which I, I hired a CEO for the first time right before the pandemic, excellent timing for me, not the best for her. Um, and, you know, I think one of the questions that people always worry about is if it's your name, are you going to be willing to sell? Um, is there going to be an exit moment? And, um, you know, for me, that's, that's never been, you know, a worry or a question. Um, I think, you know, I look at, at lots of successful brands that have been able to do that and get past an eponymous founder. My, um, our CEO actually is uh, an amazing woman named Mary Beach who um, came from Kate Spade where she was the CMO for seven years. And um, Mary joined after Kate had exited after the sale. Um, and they took that business just, I mean, they took it to an unbelievable place after that period. So I've definitely seen it done. I think it, you know, can be done. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. It's, um, you know, it, it presents potential issues for the, for the namesake, 
but also on the investor side, you know, there are some stories, you know, the, the, the somewhat legendary story of uh, DKNY Mm -hmm. uh, being dropped from Nordstrom stores after certain comments that Donna herself had made. And this is going back in time to Harvey Weinstein days, who was a friend of hers, and she made some positive comments about him during that time. Nordstrom's dropped her account, and she had no equity in the business whatsoever. So it didn't it didn't hurt her at all, but it hurt the owners of DK. Yeah, and sure. so there's kind of that human risk that the investors have to deal with. Um, you seem like a very sensible person. So, you know, in your case, it's, it's less so than, uh, you know, we wouldn't expect you to be at some Paris uh, cafe sort of making, making off-color remarks like Galliano did or, you know, but there are these examples of, of an eponymous uh, designer who is kind of torpedoed in a way yeah. their own brand value. I think today's designer is also very different than um, you know what it used to be. And one of the things that I, I didn't anticipate in starting the brand um, was how much I would become the face of the brand. Um, as much as Donna Karen or any of these people were the face of their brand, they were the face for the fashion community. They weren't the face as much for their customer because yeah. it was before social media. Um, and I think that the way, the real benefit that I've seen is the way I'm able to interact and, and, um, and really have that direct conversation with my customers through social media um, is something I couldn't have anticipated, but been a real bonus for the brand and for the company. Yeah. Well, let's talk about social media. It's impossible to have a conversation about a brand, let alone a direct-to-consumer brand without talking social media. Um, how much of yourself is in it? It sounds like a lot, but you know, maybe unpack it a little bit. When I started the brand, we were a wholesale brand. So we okay. started in, you know, first a couple specialty boutiques. Um, uh, in fall 2016, we launched Barney's New York. Okay. Um, and from there, we got into Bloomingdale's, Moda, Shop Up, all of these places. We had about, you know, I think almost 60 doors across the country. And in, we, have, we were in Barney's Japan and a few other places. And um, in uh, the spring of 2018, I uh, decided, well, before that, a lot of it led to it, but I decided to move to direct to consumer. So I completely dropped all of my wholesale accounts and dropped my prices about 40 to 50%. And there were a lot of things that led to that decision, but um, I sort of looked at the, you know, the, the fashion world around me and, and the way that I was consuming and, and the way that my friends were consuming. And um, there was really sort of a digital revolution going on. Um, it wasn't just Orby Parker eyeglasses and Casper mattresses that you were buying online DTC anymore. There were brands that were selling apparel and you know cashmere sweaters and denim and all of these things and they were growing like crazy. And um, they were having direct conversations with their customer, offering their customer a better price. Um, and they were creating basics, right? Like really, really good core essentials. But I just saw it and I thought, wow, these companies are making basics and core essentials. But what if you did this with a luxury brand? What if you took a true luxury product made in Italy and um, sold it direct to consumer and dropped your prices and, and, um, and really had that direct conversation? And, um, you know, there were other frustrating things about working with wholesale that I'm sure you've heard from every designer under the sun. Indeed. Um, but I, these days. Exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, 
one of the questions that I, there were a lot of things that led to this decision, but one of the questions I get a lot is, you know, was there sort of a, a straw that broke the camel's back on, um, on the decision to move to direct to consumer? And there absolutely was. Um, it was a moment when I walked onto the floor of one of these department stores and asked for where my shoes were um, because they weren't in their normal location. And it took me and the sales associates about 20 minutes to find them. Um, and when we found them, not only um, did it take us 20 minutes, but they were in two different locations. So I was just thinking, oh my God, I am spending money and energy and you know, all of this capital to drive people into the store. They're not gonna wait 20 minutes and they're not gonna know that they're only seeing part of the assortment. And right. by the way, it's not the assortment I would choose for this store. Um, because I know my customers like this product better than this product. Um, and, uh, and so that was sort of it. And we, you know, I went to my, my board and my investors and said, I want to do this. Um, and they all said, okay, you know, a little bold, a little crazy, but tell me the vision. I came up with a, a totally new business plan. Um, and we, we ended those relationships in the spring of, um, 2018 and then um no spring of 2017 and then november 2017 we completely pivoted the business that um, is excellent timing as yeah. as as you well know and as your yeah. now well knows so they should be um they should get be, be getting horse picks from you um but i want to unpack a bit of that because there's there's a lot interesting in what you just said certainly on the luxury you know back to 2017 virtually no luxury brands were had had a website that allowed purchase they're very slow to that and they've enjoyed the benefit of their positioning that people will go to be able to shop at mm -hmm. chanel because there aren't many places you can get it um they're coming around to that way of thinking but i think you know as a startup and positioning yourself in that way was very shrewd yeah, and I think the, the thing is, there's so many, there's a lot of true benefits to being a luxury brand, and there's a lot of benefits to being direct to consumer. And I think what we have aimed to do is really redefine that luxury experience and take the best of direct to consumer, which is, you know, the relationship with the customer, the better pricing, um, you know, the, the fact that you have uh, complete insight into your customer base. Um, and the best of luxury, which is that you have, you know, an unbelievable lifetime value. Um, you have that sort of prestige that goes around it with celebrity and press from, you know, the Vogue's and the Harper's Bazaars of the world and really merge them in one brand. Yeah. Well, what's also interesting is there aren't many brands that have straddled that line, started as wholesale, become direct to consumer. And I, I would guess that you were small enough that it wasn't like turning an aircraft carrier. It was a little bit easier yeah. in 2017 for you, which, you know, kudos to you for that. We, we gave up revenue, no but we weren't Chanel giving up or not Chanel because they don't sell that much to wholesale, but we weren't, uh, you know, say Manolo Blahnik who would have right. been catastrophic. Yeah, it would. I mean, it's, it's spaghetti to mm -hmm. unravel all of those relationships would be very, very difficult, time consuming. Um, but Back to starting in wholesale, I mean, if you had started as a direct-to-consumer brand, and maybe you can comment on this from today's experience on social media and how you're paying for, you know, for ads if, if you are or influencers, yeah. but I have found that eyeballs are 
just so expensive these days. And right. so if you are starting a direct to consumer brand today, you have to be extremely well-funded to even just get some little soundbite amidst all the noise that people are bombarded with on whatever social media platform they're on or whenever they're online. Mm -hmm. um, whereas with the wholesale model, you know, you had a few orders from a few yeah. anchor wholesale stores and you were in business. Yeah. So you were able to kind of take that initial push from wholesale and recognition pivot quickly, and now you're direct-to-consumer. What are you seeing, though, in the direct-to-consumer space with the pricing of eyeballs? Yeah. Well, I think what wholesale does for you is it gives you credibility as well, particularly when you're at a really high price point. Um, so we came out of this with, you know, a fair amount of credibility. You know, even um, in the beginning, I remember when we were trying to get press and I was working with, um, with Megan, who, you know, uh, yeah. and she was like, you need to get a major account. You need to get, you know, and when, once we got Barney's, it was so much easier to get press and all of these things. And of course that's much more cost-effective than it is to pay, you know, a huge amount of money on, on digital advertising. You know, we went into this transition to direct to consumer with celebrity press all of these things that allowed us to you know spend a lot less on digital marketing um, and we were also able to use that press in our digital marketing so take that quote from vogue that says you know this is the next great american luxury brand or whatever and um and and repurpose that into press it has a much higher roi than you would imagine for you know a traditional ad um, but there's no question that digital marketing is expensive and has gotten more and more expensive, particularly in the last year. Um, you know, I think that our approach has always been, you know, what are what are we best at and where can we win? Because we're never going to beat the uh, the biggest brands out there spending the most money on um, on digital ads. But um, where we can win is really within our community and within the experiences that we create for our community. So you asked a little bit about influencer. Um, we have a brand ambassador program that has, you know, over, gosh, we're over 700 brand ambassadors at this point. Um, and these women are micro-influencers, so they are not, um, most of them have a couple hundred to a couple thousand Instagram followers. So these are not the ones with, you know, 500K or even, you know, a million followers, although we have worked with those ones before and they have serve a different purpose. Mm -hmm. um, these are women, you know, that are interior decorators, that are lawyers, that are, um, you know, event planners, that have networks of women in their lives that trust them and look at them as arbiters of taste. Um, and they share the product in exchange for, they share a discount code for the product in exchange for product. So they earn um, credits towards shoes um, as they sell and acquire more customers for the brand. Yeah. And, um, and that has become, you know, not just a selling tool and a customer acquisition tool, but really a community for the brands that has had a, a really, you know, uh, domino effect for us. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's a model I'm familiar with. And it's a good one. Uh, provided your product is good. I'm seeing more and more brands where their product is good. That becomes almost the fourth leg of the stool in terms of marketing because the product kind of speaks for itself. Exactly. So maybe tell us about what you learned in Italy, how you produce the product and why women love, love, love it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, learned a lot in Italy, uh, mainly that there wasn't a good reason that luxury shoes were uncomfortable other than, you know, 
mainly luxury shoe designers are men, I have to say. <laughs> and I don't think they're necessarily fit testing them themselves. Um, but, you know, I think that, first of all, I fell in love with the, you know, the craftsmanship there and the quality and the, the way that um, it's handed down from generation to generation. There's a level of, of pride there that I think you see in the end product. Um, but, you know, we have things like I've added arch support to the shoes, um, you know, six millimeters of padding, rubber on the bottom, all of these things that I used to get added to my shoes after I would buy them. So I'd buy a nice pair of shoes and then I'd go to Leather Spa and spend another $80 to put rubber on the bottom so I didn't slip, Dr. Scholl's so my feet weren't killing me. And, um, you know, stretch, stretch the toe boxes because Italian shoes in particular, the toe boxes were so incredibly narrow that your feet would just be dying by the, you know, by the end of a couple of hours. Um, and so I've worked really hard to integrate all of those things into the shoes, but not only that, the shoes have evolved as, um, you know, as the brand has evolved. And we do take a lot of customer feedback into account. Um, when we launch new products, we test it with customers first. We test it with women with wide feet, narrow feet, high arches, low arches, um, all of these different things to really make sure that, that we are creating something that's superior and that women, you know, not only um, look amazing in, but feel amazing in because, and, and, and that doesn't look like orthopedic footwear because I felt there was a lot of really comfortable shoes out there that were great, but fashionable women didn't want to wear those. Yeah, the dad sneaker moment has kind of come and gone, right? <laughs> um, so back to Italy though, in particular, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm in an Italian suit right now. I mean, look, it's it, Italy, Italian craftsmanship is at the apex, really. Uh, mm -hmm. And in particular, footwear and leather goods is what they are known for, probably most specifically. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you produce entirely in Italy. Is, is that a conscious choice and almost a element of the branding um, or can, artisans that that make these types of shoes not be found elsewhere yeah so you know i think our goal has always been to go to where something is done best so for example um one of the things that doesn't come from italy are our embroideries we go to india for that because they have incredible craftspeople that are that is their heritage and what they do um, we go to a mill in the uk that does unbelievable jacquards um, and so that that has sort of been our choice. I think, you know, at one point we did Espigirls and we did those in Spain because that again is a heritage item from Spain. And I think that that will only continue as we start to expand in different categories for the brand. Um, but, you know, I don't think I, I can't necessarily speak to every other country because I haven't been to, to their manufacturing facilities. Right. But I, what I can speak to is, is the sort of innovation that you see in Italy and, um, and, and the care that they put into things and, and you know, the fact that we, we have boots on the ground there and are able to really be in the factories, be um, working with the artisans there and seeing what's happening. Well, for our listeners, describe that process. Particularly in the luxury sector in Italy, and this is not all of Italy, because by the way, there's different levels of quality of made in Italy for sure. Yeah. And there are brands that make parts of the shoes other places and then ship them to Italy and they're assembled. That is yep. not us at all. Um, but, you know, the high-end tanneries, the places that we source from, they are all heavily, heavily regulated. 
um, by the government and by the brands. So they have, you know, certifications and things that we do check. Um, you know, our, we have a, a production manager who, who lives um, in the region where most of our shoes are made. He's in and out of the factories every single day working with them. Um, and so he knows, you know, everything that, that is going on there. Um, one of the things that our customers have loved that we do is, um, his name is Mattia, and we have Mondays with Mattia on Instagram often, and he'll take people into the factories on his iPhone and he'll show them what's going on. And I, I just got back from Italy actually, um, where I was at the factories and, you know, we do things like interviews with the different artisans and, you know, hear about where they came from and, and what they do. And, and that is really important to consumers. They want to understand who made their shoes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. And the ease with which you can get that content, if you're open to just opening your doors up, right. Yeah. Um, is on an is, iPhone. <laughs> iPhone away. Right. Right. Um, well, this is maybe a question that is not answerable, but I'd love just your thoughts or speculations on it for a long time. It really has been Italy France, maybe Spain, where most luxury items and most luxury brands in mm -hmm. fashion um, have come from. Mm -hmm. And I, I've always wondered because the raw materials and some of the production takes place in places like India or mm -hmm. Peru. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, and this is not a for your brand, this is more just a speculative you know, could a luxury brand emerge from one of these countries that's not in Europe, um, may not even be thought of as a as a first world country, um, but where the artisans, you know, do have a legacy of of true skill um, mm -hmm. that could be translated, you know, into a product that would appeal to Western consumers. Yeah, I think with the right team and infrastructure and, um, you know, that it could absolutely happen. It sounds very capital intensive to me, <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I think that you know what what is really interesting um, as well is working with um, countries, those types of countries that um, you can find those particular crafts that are native to them. Um, but it also involves, to your point, making sure that you are checking who you're working with, that they are paying a fair wage and. Um, that their working conditions are good and um, and that's more involved. So that's that's something that that bigger brands um, do and and need to do. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's shift a little and consider your your customers and um, you know in the changing topography of of how women dress for work, how mm -hmm. women dress to go out if they're going out. I mean, obviously we've been 18 to 24 months into a pandemic and um, a lot of brands have not had a great experience with that in terms of their sales, but some have had uh, an amazing experience. My environment, you're looking at it for work. You know, I mean, I am, I'm in a little box most of the day and no one sees my feet. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, have you seen a dip um, because of so much work from home that doesn't feature feet and doesn't feature, you know, marching into a conference room? Um, or have you seen people with, with more disposable income because they're not taking trips that are spending more on your, 
I mean, we're definitely seeing a pent up demand now that people are, are going out and are, are very excited to be dressed up. We saw a shift is what we really saw. I mean, we were already a digitally native brand. So that was really helpful. I think it was a lot more challenging for brands that had permanent retail and, and all of that. And, um, and so, you know, we had to make some adjustments pretty early on, like moving a lot of our buys into flats and more casual styles. Um, we certainly did not sell a lot of high heels in the last year. Although now I will tell you, we are selling an insane amount of heels. Um, we launched slippers, which did incredibly well for us. Um, we happened to be launching silk scarves at the time, um, or that spring. And so, um, which is the, I'm only not wearing one now because I don't have amazing AC and I'm so warm, but um, amazing Zoom accessory. Um, you know, I think it was really just sort of adjusting our assortment and and um, and really focusing on our, our core and existing customer base. I would say, you know, customer acquisition got much more challenging in the height of the pandemic for sure. Um, but it's just, it's rebounding like crazy now, which is, is really exciting to see. And, you know, even I think as, as we look at things changing a little bit again now, um, I think people are, you know, not gonna go back to where they were. They're gonna figure out ways to be with their friends outside, to be, um, to be together and, and live live life in a you know in a new new normal as they say yeah well so yes being online with a storefront that people recognized and that was well built out and you know you understood fulfillment was was a great advantage during a time when people were kind of in bed shopping or yes. working um <laughs> Do you envision any brick and mortar presence ever for the brand? And, you know, what would that look like? And how much of that would be a store versus a brand experience? Yeah, so we had our first pop-up shop in the fall of 2019 uh, in Soho. It was beyond all of our expectations. Um, and it was very, very experiential. Um, we, it was a more of a showroom model uh, where we would ship um, we did have some carry away for our core styles, but it was very much about coming in and experiencing the brand. Um, we had, you know, Maman cookies and tea that you were offered, you know, upon arrival. Uh, customers were really encouraged just to try shoes on. And um, it wasn't so much about purchasing in the moment, although there was a lot of that. It was about um, feeling those comfort details and features. We had um, shoe walls, sized shoe walls, basically, where someone could grab a pair of shoes and try them on. And then a little, we had a, a what we call a shoe fee moment where you would take a picture of your shoes and, and share it on social media. Um, and all of that really just encourage, encourage people to get their feet in the shoes because I, because of all of these comfort details, I know if I can just get people to try the shoes on um, that they're, they're going to be sold. Um, but we would say to customers, you know, try it on. What we'll do is we'll write down, you know, the style name, the sizes that you like, and we'll send you an email with all of that information and a discount code so that we could then track it back to um, that being a in real life customer acquisition. Um, and that is how we envision all of our retail in the future. Um, we paused on pop-ups, obviously, in 2020. Uh, we are opening our next pop-up in Washington, D.C. in September. And um, we have uh, a few more in the books that are, are in negotiation as well. So I very, very much believe in in-person experiences, particularly for our product, which is um, such a fit and feel type of thing. 
Um, and I think that, you know, for us, our, our whole goal is really redefining what that luxury experience is. And when I think about the experience that I had in so many luxury stores um, as a shopper, it felt very sort of cold and, and not friendly. Um, and our stores are just very, very different um, in the way that that I mentioned, or you do, you come in, you're offered, you know, it, it's not a guy in a suit at the door that you feel like if you're going to touch anything, they'll think you're robbing the place. <laughs> um, it, it's, a, it's a really inviting and warm atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that is what is so great about having that, that physical space, even if it's a pop-up. In some cases, because it's a pop-up and it's limited in time, is, is that direct experience with your customer in a way that, it sounds like with wholesale accounts, you very much knew you were at arm's length. You know, you were at a Heisman's arm's length yeah. from your customer and, and not, not sure how your product was being presented. Um, maybe a bit about you personally. Sure. Uh, who are your, and please, you know, I always get my mom or my grandmother, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say you can't use them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> your, your style inspirations, your personal yeah. style inspirations, and it doesn't need to be specific to footwear um, or even apparel, just, um, you know, individuals that have maybe informed a little bit the way you design or the way that you positioned the brand, but are personal to you. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure you get this one a lot too, but um, very much an, an old movie fanatic. And so always watching uh, Grace Kelly, um, Audrey Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn, that sort of vibe is, is, is very much in my wheelhouse. Um, and, you know, I know you said no grandmothers, but I'm going to have to tell you about my grandmother because okay. that's special. <laughs> um, so my grandmother, as I mentioned, she was an artist and um, lived in Paris. And um, she had a very unique approach to style. Um, and she collected things from, she traveled a lot and collected things from all over the world. And one of her um, philosophies, which is very, you know, much on point with, with where the trend is today was that she would say, I don't have a lot of things, but the things that I have are really good. Um, and so she would buy really, really nice things, but not that frequently. And that's very much how I feel about, about fashion in general and, and investing in things that are going to be enduring. Um, and are a little bit unique. She also, you know, if she had labels, she used to, I remember she had a pair of Armani jeans that she had stitched a pocket square on the back of because the pocket had like the little Armani um, logo on it. And she didn't want anyone to see that. She wanted her whole expression. It was, she was choosing the clothes as her own self-expression. You know, she wasn't representing the brand. And so that has also been, you know, very much my approach. And I've had met with so many people over the years who have told me, you need a big logo, you need, you know, all of these things that's going to help you in these different markets. And, um, and I feel just that way. And maybe it's because that's what, you know, she always told me growing up that, you know, it should be about how the customer wants to express themselves, not what I want for them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you're certainly allowed to bring that, uh, that, that story into it. And I apologize. I mean, everybody, what I find so touching about creatives like yourself is that they are so informed by their family. I mean, yeah. honestly, most people do reference a, a direct parent or grandparent. 
but but I grew up in Massachusetts. My mother wore Dansko clogs and you know uh, Patagonia fleeces. This was not she was she was not the fashion <laughs> fashion icon. Right, right. Um, well, you touched on something that I think will hit a chord for a lot of listeners. Um, less and better versus you know more and many and 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 fashion. So I'll ask this question, which is a pretty hackneyed question. Um, and I'm kind of leading you to a particular answer, but your answer will be your answer. I mean, for you, what is the difference between fashion and style? Yeah. I mean, when I think about fashion, I think of what is of the moment, right? What is in fashion in that moment? And when I think about style, I think about what is enduring and what, will, what is timeless and what will last. And, you know, even when I think about my grandmother, that woman had style. I mean, and it was her own. It was unique and and individual, and um, and so I, I'd really say that's the difference. It's between you know, between trend and and what is timeless. So on style, um, and and maybe more on continuing the personal vein here. Um, you're well traveled. Uh, what cities for you do you find women to be? the most stylish. And because you're a footwear designer, I mean, let's kind of focus a little on the feet. Um, but, and, and I, I, I'm sure of at least one town that I think you're going to mention, but, but give me three and give me the reasons why. Yeah. Um, it's going to have to be Paris because, you know, it, yeah. it's, what they, it's what they care about. <laughs> um, Paris, I would say, um, you know, I could pick any town in Italy, really. That's the, the amazing thing. And and one thing I will say that I'm very su always surprised about is that these women are wearing heels in every moment of their life and um, on bicycles. I, I love how you will go through even the town where our shoes are made, which is a, a, a tiny little town in Italy, and you've got women dressed to the nines and riding bicycles in heels. Um, and it's just such a part of their, their self-expression. Um, and, and luxury is really, you know, so ingrained in them as well. It's not just wealthy women who are wearing luxury items. They really do invest in those pieces. London as well. I think that, uh, there are parts of London where you see in, incredibly stylish women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what about brands, um, contemporary brands that, um, whether it's from a product perspective or a customer engagement perspective that, that excites you, that, uh, that you're a fan of right now? Yeah. From a product perspective, um, I'm a huge fan of brands like Amelia Wickstead, um, Alessandra Rich, I love. Um, I love, um, there's a somewhat newer Colombian brand called Agua by Agua Bendita. Um, and all, have a bit of a, a retro vibe, I would say, um, which I love. And from a customer engagement perspective, there are so many, you know, brands that are doing interesting things. Um, you know, you think of Peloton, you think of, um, you know, uh, um, you know, Glossier is a classic one that, <laughs> that probably everybody says. Golden Branch is another really good one. And I think all of them really involve their customers in their marketing and in their experience um, in a very, very unique way. Well, we are about out of time. Are there any um, 
you know, any shout outs or nonprofits that you're working with that you want to let our listeners know about while we have a little time for it? Sure. Um, we are, we always work with Girl Up, um, which is a, an amazing one, Lower East Side Girls Club, a lot of uh, different sort of women's ones. Um, I would say uh, there's one that I personally work with called Nurturing Minds, um, and it's a school for girls in Tanzania. That's really amazing. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah, have a great rest of your afternoon. And listeners, thanks for tuning in. See you next time. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at at hand of the law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.